0: Is, um, it, it's nice to be close so close to all of you. <laughs> kind of like I was telling Michaela, it's like preaching in the round, you know, surrounding uh? here. Yeah. What about me? Um, I did notice that some of your groups made it around to the Enneagram in your discussion. So one of these weeks, I'm just I think I'll just make three Enneagram discussion questions and save you guys the work of making that bridge so that, you know, you can talk about it. (laughs) So, lately, uh, Nora has been struggling with potty training. She's been struggling with peeing. Um, Mainly that it's not happening in a toilet. (laughs) And so I feel like every other day I'm either getting peed on or I'm cleaning up pee. And it reminded me of my all-time favorite description of what love is. And it goes like this. Love is like peeing on yourself. Everyone can see it, but only you can feel the warmth. I think that's pretty close to what love is like. That's pretty great. So today, our scripture in Micah invites us into a conversation about what sanctification is, which is a lot like falling in love, which is a lot like being on yourself. Sort of. It's crazy. close. <laughs> um, one of my favorite things to do in studying theology is to break down really big words. We have all these great theologians that have put together these complex theologies, and they've thought really deeply about things. Uh, But ultimately, all of these big concepts break down into a hope and an understanding that is available to everyone in every place, anywhere. Um, And the big words are not really what's important anyway. But I think that the more big words that you know, the more important it is to take time to break them down to remember what is the the truth that's very simple, that lies behind these complex theologies. And so there's, a, you know, the word sanctification, all you need to do is say it, and you already, like, sound smarter. It's just one of those really big words. And we wrestle with some of these big words, the, the simple truth behind the big words, we wrestle with it, because it pushes against the world that we experience, that we know, and it, Pushes against our own nature. So, in the Wesleyan tradition, which the Nazarene Church is a part of, and how we understand who God is, there is this concept of sanctification. And it's important because we find this concept all through the story of God. It starts in the Old Testament and it continues all the way through the New Testament. Um, we hear this idea of how God sanctifies us. So it draws our attention, but But in the Wesleyan tradition, the way that you'll hear it said is entire sanctification. So before we talk about that word entire, we're going to talk quickly about the word sanctify. In short, sanctify. It means to purify or to cleanse. So it means that you are purified from sin. So quick breakdown on sin. We're just going to cover all the things. You know, that's my way. So, quick breakdown on sin. In scripture, we have two different words that are used to describe what sin is. The first one is a word that talks about like knowing something is wrong and then doing it anyway. So you could think of it as like like a turning away from God. And then there's another word that's used for sin and it talks about um, kind of this like missing the mark is what a lot of people will, will talk about this as. And this is is kind of our nature. It's like who we are as a person is to choose ourself, to think of ourself, our own self-preferences, is to choose ourself over God. So, but there's more, there's more to this process of being purified of sin than just that it's removed from us. There's more to it because there's something that happens in our heart. So when we ask the question of what is sanctification, it's kind of sort of like asking the question of what is falling in love? It's like asking that question because it's really hard to describe the experience of falling in love without talking about the experience of it. Right, like We can think of maybe big words to explain it, but ultimately when we really get down to it, we talk about what we felt and what we experienced. So sanctification, right? Big word again. Every time I say it, I just feel like, ugh, it's such a big word. Sanctification, and, and we talk about this in the Wesleyan denomination, or Wesleyan theology, as a second work of grace. So the first work of grace is that moment of big word salvation so it's that moment of when we decide to begin this relationship with god it's that moment when we receive and we confess god as lord of our life when we realize that to be in relationship with god we need god's grace and god's forgiveness and from that moment of belief is this and turning toward god it begins this relationship And immediately from that moment of beginning that relationship, God begins this work in our heart to change it and transform it to be more like the heart of God. And in that process, somewhere along the way, we fall in love. I know that sounds really cheesy. So another way to say it is that there is this real and total shift that happens and takes place in our heart where we can say that we love God more than we love ourselves, Our whole heart becomes entirely given to God. And that's something that's really hard to do initially when we first decide that that we believe in God, that we will follow God, that God is Lord of our life. It's hard to do that because we don't even realize how divided our heart is. In the story of um, when... Kevin and I met and fell in love, there was this moment where we decided, right, to begin a relationship together. And then sometime after that, there was a moment (coughs) when I fell in love with Kevin. And it wasn't like I fell in love with the idea of him, you know, like writing our initials in notebooks and getting butterflies in my stomach whenever he was around, you know. But it was a love that happened when a real shift took place in my heart, where suddenly I loved him with a love that coincided with commitment. And it required this reorientation of my whole life. I didn't make important decisions anymore without considering Kevin. And it wasn't because I felt like I had to. It wasn't because I was expected to. It was because I no longer could imagine a life where Kevin was not so important to me that I needed to consider him before making some kind of decision. It was like one of those um, where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I'll stay kind of loves that you read about in the book of Ruth. So true story, I actually pulled out the Highlights DVD from NYC 2003. Not New York City. That would be the Nazarene Youth Conference of 2003. New York City may have been more exciting. But it's this, uh, if you're not familiar, it's this massive uh, Christian conference for high school students. And I went when I was 15 years old. And the DVD is incredible. Um, and all of its video production of 2003 glory, you know, it's, it's fantastic. You can come over one night and we'll just pop it in, you know, it's really great. Um, But it just so happens that on this DVD, there is a highlight, it's like a one-minute highlight from the night where I personally experienced this shift that took place in my heart toward God. And I don't know that everybody has this, like, certain moment that you remember falling in love, or that you have this certain moment that you remember the first time that you uh, were sanctified, that you offered God your entire heart, your entire (coughs) being— But I personally experienced that um, at this on this one night, where um, you know, in classic evangelical fashion, there was like flashing lights and fog machines and uh, fear tactics. You know, I really wish that was like a funny joke, but it happens to be true. Um, you know, but despite the hype of the moment, like something very very real happened in my heart. It was the night that uh, Susie Schellenberger, Schellenberg. Su- Anyway, Susie, Susie spoke (laughs) and she came up and she spoke right after um, the father of Rachel Scott came up and he spoke. And if you're not familiar with who Rachel Scott was, she was one of the students that died in the Columbine shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, The gunman came into her school, asked her if she was a Christian and she said yes. And so her dad had come to this conference and he was sharing out of her journal and it was a truly moving. Um, journal, the things that she was writing in there. This girl had for real experienced sanctification. And she had this one entry where she had traced her hand and she'd written this prayer asking God to let her life touch millions of people no matter what it cost. And so then Susie gets up and she then challenges this room full of thousands of students. If we would follow christ no matter what it cost and that it would require our whole self our entire self our entire heart and would we do it and then she classically asked all the students that would to stand now she didn't realize that in 10 years this 10 these 10,000 millennials would like totally deconstruct this experience <laughs> <talk about> <laughs> Um, I will say this, though. There is something that's really, really important about asking yourself that question. Asking yourself, whose is your life? And you actually get to decide that. And many people choose that they want to maintain control of their life, even people who believe in God. And God continues to beckon us to the Freedom of realizing that our life has never been our own and that control is, is just a lie. But in God's love, relationship with God is never forced. It's only invited. And there's something important about being asked the question, will you follow Christ no matter the cost? As a teenager, I think it's really hard to imagine what that even means. It seems like one option is that you could die, but perhaps much harder is what that means about how it might change the way you live. So simply put, sanctification is when you decide to give yourself entirely to the work that God is already doing in your heart your relationship with God and this decision is one that comes from a love that God grows to be greater than your love for anything or for anyone else now remember I heard people say that and I always kind of wrestled and had trouble with it because how am I supposed to really love God more than I love my grandma or like my children you know like that's that's a really hard thing to understand why would God ask me to love God more than I love my child. And Kyra actually asked me this this week. She she came up to me, like she does, and she said, Mama, who do you love more? Me or Jovi? (laughs) (laughs) And Jovi is her friend. And I felt like Jesus. You know, being asked this incredibly impossible question But do you ever get in one of those moments where you're asked one of these impossible questions and you're like, uh, but then something just comes out of you and you don't know where it came from, and you're like, oh, that was really good. (laughs) So I had this moment. It's probably the Holy Spirit, I don't know. But I had this moment, and I said to her, I said, it's not about loving one person more than another. It's that I love both of you with the same kind of love. You see, my love for them is possible because of my love for God. It flows from that love. So on my very first district minister's uh, interview a couple years ago, I had to fill this application. On the application, it says, are you entirely sanctified, right? Have you fully given your entire life over to God? Has the process been completed? That's how I read it. I read entirely as complete like, total, like, are you sanctified? Check, 2003. Took care of it. Right? Not what it means. But that's how I read it. So I put a big ol' X over the no box, which they did not really like. But I, I know there's too many people in my life that would come forward and they would say, no, she is not done yet. I can tell you for sure. Namely, my children.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there's this incredible theologian named Mildred Winecoop. She just had a sidewalk named after her at Trevecca. That's the thing now, and she wrote this book back in 1972. That I actually just was starting to read this week. It's amazing. I totally recommend it. Lots of big words. Um, (laughs) It took me like an hour to read a page, but but like once you work through it, it's really really good. Um, This is a this is what she said. This is not a quote. This is my own breaking it down simplistically. But this is kind of what she said. Entire sanctification is about the entire self. It's your heart, your mind, your body. It's your relationships, your comforts, your preferences, your decisions. Every part of who you are given into the hands of a loving God that gently shapes you to be more like God's self. So that you may bring God's hope and healing and love into the darkest corners. But before there can be a new creation in yourself, there has to be a death to yourself that creates the space for God to break in. It's like what we read in Romans 12 where Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will. So, now that we have... Preheated the oven. Let's get to our main scripture for the sermon. Mm-hmm. I love doing that. I just I like the idea of like freaking people out, like, oh, we're three-fourths of the way through, but we're just now starting. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no worries. We did a start in Genesis this time, okay? Like, you, know, you gotta give me that.
1: <laughs>
0: so we have this text that we're gonna read in Micah. And Micah is a minor prophet. Um Prophets are less of a fortune teller and they're more of a reminder. When people forget what God has done or when people forget who they are, that's when a prophet comes in and reminds them of truth. And so, in this text, to break it down, it's a conversation we read earlier, but Micah is talking to the Israelites about what God's saying to them. And then they ask some questions, and then Micah responds. So let's, let's stand, shall we? Is that okay for the reading of God's word? Is that all right? And you can follow in your handout if, if you would like to. So Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountain, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you, you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. And this is where the Israelites answer back. Or sorry, this is this is where God is speaking. Oh, my people, what have I done to you, and what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. And then the people respond, And they say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah answers, he has told you A mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of the Lord. Uh, I invite you to sit if you would like. Or you can stay standing, I mean. (laughs) There is so much freedom in those words. The people ask Micah, what do we need to do to be in right relationship with God? And then they begin listing these increasingly ridiculous offerings. Like, who is going to be able to actually gather 10,000 rivers of oil? They're just increasingly more and more ridiculous. Basically, they're throwing up their hands. And they're saying, we could never, ever do enough. And the freedom and hope comes in that they are right. They could never do enough. And what does God require of them? He requires them, their whole self, their whole heart. The words do and love and walk, they may sound like a to-do list that God is creating for his people, but don't miss it because that's not at all what this conversation is about. What this conversation is about is not what they can do, but whose they are. It's about their heart. So we're gonna wrap up with a story and a song, not at the same time. (laughs) Some of you remember Ponderous, perhaps, maybe not. Maybe many of you don't know about Ponderous, but Ponderous was one of my very great ideas. It was going to be a company that would create weighted blankets out of organic, fair trade material and recycled plastic pellets. And if you don't know what weighted blankets are, in short, they're this therapeutic tool. They're blankets that are filled with plastic pellets that makes them heavy. And so if you lay down, you lay it on yourself, then it can help with things like anxiety or um, trouble sleeping, things like that. A lot of physical therapists use them. Um, they're great. They're really great, and they're they're a tool that brings healing in people's lives. So the idea of Ponderous was that these tools could be created to bring healing without hurting anyone else. So I made a Facebook page and an Instagram feed, and I designed a website and I bought a domain. <laughs> um, I purchased materials and even some parts for my sewing machine. I hired someone to design this logo. I ordered boxes from an eco-friendly company to print this logo on them. I consulted with a social media marketing coordinator. Um, I developed a mission statement and core values. I made little cards to go in the boxes with the blankets um, that would describe where all the different materials were sourced from. I did all these things. But do you know what I did not do? Sew a blanket. Not one. (laughs) I had the box, but it was empty. The box was only a container that was designed to do justice. I did all the things, but I did not do the thing. I made a weighted blanket company without making a weighted blanket. True story. This is not the case for every gathering of the church, but here at Kuleo, this is a group of extraordinary people that are really, really good at doing justice. Really good. I actually asked several of you guys this week to just send me some different specific practical ways that we as a people can do justice, and you came up with this really, really awesome list, truly. It's amazing. This is what you said. March in Peaceful Protest. Grow your own food, use reusable bags, adopt children, create affordable housing, buy less stuff, be kind. Research companies, know people different than you, vote for people who will protect others. Avoid eating meat, stand up against discrimination, borrow instead of buy, compost, avoid $3 sweaters (laughs) at (laughs) H&M. Plant a garden, line dry your clothes, carpool, visit neighbors in the nursing home, make your own products, recycle, forgive people, foster kids, buy fair trade coffee, chocolate, and tea, don't use plastic straws, shop thrift or consignment, reduce waste, engage in local politics, ride a bike. <laughs> I thought it'd be good to end with that one. <laughs> we could literally double this list in two minutes. You guys are really, really good at doing justice. We can give our lives to justice, doing all the things without doing the thing. Maybe hearing this list feels overwhelming to you, like it's more likely that you'd be able to gather 10,000 rivers of oil than it would be to, to measure up to this list. Take hope. It's not about what you can do. Maybe hearing this list is affirming because you're already doing a lot of these things. Be still and know who is God. It's not that we don't do these things, but it's that first we need to do the thing. Before we play the song that we're gonna close with, um, here's what this looks like practically, okay? When we wake up in the morning, and we're lying in our bed, it's this sort of image of how our day begins in stillness, in death, and then how we are raised to life. So we begin each day in stillness, laying in our bed, and we breathe in, and as life fills our lungs, we offer our entire selves as a living sacrifice to God. And then, having died to ourselves, we ask God to raise us from death into life, filling us with himself, sanctifying us, transforming us. Literally God creating something new inside of us that we can do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. And this is what changes it from an exhausting Overwhelming to-do list, laden with guilt and shame of failing to a joyful, compelling of our heart. And in this transformative moment that we need every single day, not just once back in 2003, but literally every single day, it changes it to where it's no longer about us, but it's about God living through us. I often hear people say, when someone has died that they love and that person loved God, that they grieve. They're broken. They are so sad, but they grieve differently because they grieve with hope. Even Christians whose lives are entirely sanctified, they still encounter brokenness, in themselves and in the world and in other people, we still have needs, we still struggle, we still grow weary, we still face problems, but in all these things, we encounter them in a different way. When our life is not ours, we encounter all these things in a different way. It's not about us and what we can produce, It's not about us and what we prefer. It's not about us and what we're comfortable with. It's not about us and what keeps us safe. It's not even about what we need. And so whether it's for the first time today, for the first time this week, for the first time ever, would you ask yourself this question? Whose are you? Is your entire self, your entire heart, sanctified to God? What might happen if you died to yourself, your entire self, and you allowed God's love to fill you and transform you into a completely new creation? What might happen? So there's a song that I'm going to play, and then we'll sing it together, and we'll be done. It says, for you, O Lord, our soul in stillness waits. We could do the list, but it's not about what we can do. For you, O Lord, our soul in stillness waits. So as I play the song, I want to invite you into a moment of stillness.